this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Cool, let's just do it one more time. Why? Because we love making Everybody, I'm Aaron Jalabolo, and welcome to my podcast because we love making movies. Today on the program, as David Letterman used to say, we have an award-winning makeup artist, Gigi Williams, who's been behind the makeup of many Oscar-nominated films, but in years past, she's never been nominated for an Oscar herself until this year. Her nomination for makeup is one of 10 nominations for Mank, the black and white masterpiece directed by David Fincher, director of some of my favorite films like Seven, Fight Club, The Game, actually all of them. For those of you who haven't seen Mank, please check it out. If you're a cinephile, you're in for a rare treat. And if you're just looking for a fascinating story about a fascinating man and the crazy business of Hollywood, you won't be disappointed. So without further ado, let's talk to Gigi Williams, the woman behind the faces and the eyes, for that matter, of David Fincher's Mank. Hey, Gigi. Hi. Hi. Uh, So I wanted to start by asking you, do people both inside and outside the industry really understand what you do as a makeup artist? No. No. The first thing they say is, oh, do you do monsters? Yeah, I can, but that's not really where I like to be. Oh, it must be so glamorous. No, it's 18-hour days, and sometimes you're out in the lake in waders for, you know, six hours trying to keep people wet or dry. Or It's not glamorous. It's work. <laughs> but it's work that... Uh, especially on David Fincher's projects, we are all so close. We are all so such a, a fine-tuned family that we're very supportive of each other. And at the end of every project, we are all so proud of the project that we beam. So we're very happy to get back together again. And just uh, to give everyone a little bit of insight, could you in your own words sort of tell us what you do as a makeup artist uh, and just a little bit about your craft? As a makeup artist, my job, I feel, is to facilitate the actor's transformation into his character. So anything I can do as a conduit between the director and the actor to make that person into the character he wants, what works for him, that's my job. And that can be, you know, putting sweat on somebody, that can be putting a fake neck to make them look old on them. It can be uh, wiping up tears after a bad night. It can be, oh no, you've got a hangover. You're not supposed to today. It's a little bit of everything. It's art, it's psychology, it's uh, intuitiveness. You have to really read a room. You're Mm -hmm. the first person that these actors see in the morning. So you have to be in a good mood. (laughs) or at least put one out there. Mm -hmm. And you don't want your makeup 
to ever steal the, the frame, to steal the show. If people are seeing my makeup first, then I failed at my job. I really just want to become the character. My, my, my role is to just make that character happen for the actor. And so how did you come to be a makeup artist? Is it something you always knew you wanted to do or did you happen into it? How, how, did, how, did, you, how did you discover that this was something you loved to do? It's kind of everything. I mean, when I was seven years old, I was watching black and white movies with my mother and I would always look for the makeup artist in the credits. Really? Uh, yeah, really. And my sister the other day said, you know, since you were a child watching the Academy Awards, you've always said that's going to be me up there sometime. Wow. I forgot about all that. And uh, I had a job in a clothing store. I was, you know, a but, but buyer. Back, but back back up just one second. So when you were a kid and you, yeah. I, you grew up in Los Angeles, right? And so when you're watching movies with your mother and your, do, do you remember the first time you became aware of makeup? Cause obviously you became aware of the makeup artist, but was it, was it that, or how did you, how did you become aware of that at such a young age? The first makeup I did on myself was around that age using Crayola. <laughs> and I spent a good deal of my life in the bathroom making up. But now in your household, so were your parents not supportive of your art or creativity? No. Uh, my dad is uh, an electrical contractor um, three kids by the time he was 27 years old. So he's just, he's worked very hard. He's artistic in his own way. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he installs really beautiful wiring. I don't, I don't know how, I used to take Polaroids of his wiring because I used to work with him. Wow. And to, to look at the way he lined things up and moved them around is just, you go into a place that's not well thought out and you're like, oh my God, this looks like, you know, a basement somewhere and my dad's stuff is really beautiful so i think i did get quite a bit of art from him right and my mother was a pbx operator she answered phones but she had very good taste everything mm. in our house was asian everything hmm. and except for the carpet which was shag <laughs> <laughs> She was artistic in her way, but my my dad, you know, the thought of doing anything creative, one, scared him. Mm -hmm. Two, he didn't consider that work. Right. And three, he didn't and still doesn't think that women should be working or that women are as smart as men or. Wow. It's, it's really, you know, it's tough with him. Right. He's excited now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now it's all worth it. But, but what I find interesting are two things. One is that, you know, my dad's a doctor and, and, and sometimes it's hard for him to understand what we do in this business as a filmmaker, et cetera, in terms of he, you know, to him, it's you, you, you learn a craft, you do a craft, you're rewarded for your craft. And I always try to explain to him, you know, it's just the same as when you're doing something creative, when you're using your brain to solve a problem in your world, which I'm sure your father did. And it's, it's, they both have, they, they understand creativity. They just don't understand maybe our creativity, right. Or how, or how we, how we use it, which I think is so interesting. And you still get things from them, right? I mean, like you, like you said. Yeah, I mean, my dad, who really never was, when I moved to New York in 73, and he took me to the airport, and, he's, and I didn't do makeup at the time, I was just moving. Mm. I wanted to be a New Yorker. And he, I got out of the car and he said, now, just what a, go be a cosmetologist. You know, I think women are good for 
Wow. 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 Right. So I was a little pissed a few years later when I came back in a limousine with Diane von Furstenberg to do Johnny Carson's show on a 17 city book tour. And my dad met us on the sidewalk of when the limousine doors opened and Diane and I kind of fell out of the limousine. My dad came to see us. He was proud of me that night. I want to get to your life in New York. So when you decided, so you're growing up in Los Angeles and, and, and I think we talked about this a little bit the last time that it was kind of a moment when culture is really shifting when it's, it's rock and roll on the sunset strip and you're really a part of that almost as a teenager, right? I mean, that's 15. 15. And now did I read somewhere that you babysat for Frank Zappa? Yeah. For the kids. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) How did you, how did you pull that off? Well, uh, mother and uh, mothers of invention uh, was out the the album, um, and my two girlfriends and I went to the Wiltern Theater to mm-hmm. see Frank Zappa because we loved him, and we're dancing on the other side of the the orchestra pit to uh, Frank Zappa, and he said, "Come on down." So we went down and danced on the stage, and that was in 1965. And I was on tour with him again in New York for Baby Snakes. So we stayed friends all that time. And he, I lived in L.A. He lived in New York. He called me up. I was editor of my high school newspaper. He called me up in the newspaper office. And he said, uh, my wife's coming down. Can you pick her up? At, I must have been 16. Can you pick her up at the airport? And show her some houses. She's got some houses that she wants to look at in Laurel Canyon. So uh, he ends up moving to Laurel Canyon and then they needed a babysitter. So Gail and Frank both said, why don't you move in and babysit Moon? Wow. And then Dweezil. So what I find interesting is that you're always seeming to land in the middle of these really incredible moments in culture to a certain degree as a young, young kid. And then from there, how, how you, you basically say, I, I just want to go to New York. How did you decide you wanted to go to New York? Well, the summer of love, which was 1967, I was 17 years old and I was just, I mean, we were going to these love-ins and be-ins and these big, huge... Please tell the the audience what a love-in is. Give it, yeah. Well, at that time in 1967, it was it was like a slow rave is the oh. way I can describe it. Okay. Everyone okay. kind of, you know, wore what they wanted to wear and, and you go and it's like a fair, mm-hmm. but they're all freaks. I mean, we all look like we are from another planet because this is 1967 and the establishment right. is still very strong. I mean, you couldn't get into Disneyland if you were a guy with hair past your collar. And my friends had hair down to here. So, you know, in fact, this is very funny. My mother, I told you, worked as a switchboard operator and not a hostess, but she worked at the desk, the entry at a real estate office. So she's answering phones and saying hello to people. And this total crazy hippie guy comes in with three women dressed in velvet and you know they're like they're and the whole her her light her her switchboard lights up who's that who's that and the one the guy goes oh my god is 
who's that picture of? And she goes, that's my daughter, Gigi. And he goes, I know her. (laughs) (laughs) She did not appreciate it. Wow. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, we did that. And then one day, a friend of mine who worked at a Rolls Royce place in Santa Monica, or no, in, in Hollywood, he used to go and pick up Rolls Royces when they arrived in the country for special buyers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can only pick them up in two places, in New Jersey, in, at the airport in New Jersey, or in Dallas. I don't know why Dallas would have you know, the entryway to Rolls Royce, but it did. And so my friend said, do you want to go? Because I have two cars to pick up. We're going to drive them across country. We'll fly out and then we'll drive them across country. And I was like, oh, okay. I never really wanted to go to New York, but hey, it's a free trip. I get to go on a helicopter. So we fly to JFK. We take a helicopter over to whatever that airport's called. And we unpack this 23,000, 68,000 limousine. It was a little limousine. Mm -hmm, had mm -hmm. very few miles on it. We unpacked it. I get in and we're driving. We're going to go to his mother's house out in East Hampton. Mm. I don't know, East Hampton. Um, <laughs> so we get in the car and we're driving up during rush hour, 6th Avenue. And it's packed. And I'm literally leaning out of the car going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is this is unbelievable. This is where I belong. And he's going, put your head in here. Or you're going to get it pulled off. <laughs> This was the this was the seventies. This was like nineteen seventy two, right? Seventy three, very dark days in New York. It's almost like those are like taxi driver days. Yeah, yeah, totally. So we drive out to East Hampton, and we drive by um, Gray Gardens. He's showing me Gray Gardens, and then we go to visit his mother and we spend the night at his mother's house. We went to have pizza in East Hampton at the pizza place. You know, then we drive and then we pick up another car. We drive back and now I'm moving. I have to be in New York. This is where I belong. I cannot believe that I've missed this. Mm -hmm. So I buy a ticket to New York and on the airplane, it's, uh, it's Halloween. My always my favorite day, which I don't even celebrate anymore because I'm always doing something. But right. You're working. You're- <laughs> <laughs> so went to New York and on my way, I made a list of people I wanted to meet. One was Corey Tippin. Now, mind you, I don't do makeup yet, just mm-hmm. in my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to meet Corey Tippin because he made all of the models look the way they do for Andy Warhol. He designed them. And I want to meet Jane Forth because she's one of Andy's uh, models. And she looks amazing. And I saw her in Look Magazine with oiled hair down to her knees and these little eyebrows that stuck up just in the middle. And she was absolutely gorgeous. And so I want to meet those two. And I wanted to meet Andy because I felt that if Andy discovered me, then I truly had talent. But I didn't know what my talent was. I just knew that... The path I was on was magic. Hmm. It was always magic. Like you said, it just, the door opened. I go through, you know, I just, so anyway, uh, that was the order of uh, how I wanted to meet people. And then there was one other person, Genevieve Waite, who was this British 
actress and she was in this coming of age movie i don't even remember the name of it almost like a black and white movie and i must have seen that movie six or seven times i would walk down from frank zappa's house down the hill of laurel canyon to the movie theater on hollywood boulevard and then walk all the way back up and she had this funny little singing voice and she uh, she eventually married uh papa john from the mamas and the papas yeah wow. She was like a wacky girl and I wanted to meet her because I loved that character so much. So I was in New York about three weeks, went to Max's Kansas City, went in the back room um, and there was Alice Cooper, an old friend of mine from LA who I had known for years, who I had basically introduced to Frank Zappa. He says, Gigi, what are you doing? Well, you know, I moved, where he's living? I don't know, I'm not really, I'm just, kind of floating. He says, well, why don't you move into the penthouse with my girlfriend? What was her name? I forget. She modeled for Charlie. And so I did the next day. And Alice went on tour. So it was just uh, her and me. And she had to wear all of these incredible, incredible designer clothes because she had all this money. And I don't even own a coat wow. <laughs> from LA. Wow. <laughs> So you're living out of a suitcase in a penthouse. You're yeah. Only, you know, she's opened her, her closet doors and we mm -hmm. get dressed up and we go to lunch. We get dressed up and we go to here and there and have really a lot of fun. And one day she says, we're going to go to a black and gold party tonight. So we go through the closet and I wear this black dress and a hat and a veil and our ride arrives, you know, the car arrives and out of the elevator comes Corey Tippin, Jane Forth. And later we go and we meet Andy Warhol. Plus my future husband was there and uh, Ronnie Catrone. And the next day I had my picture on the cover of Women's Wear Daily with uh, Candy Darling. And wow. I wrote back to my mother, I love New York and New York. <laughs> And I didn't go home for three years, not even for Christmas. <laughs> wow. Wow. Because that became your life. I mean, it really became, it sounds like you just, obviously you said you stepped, you know, you would go through the door, but you stepped into this life. But, but also, I mean, it, it does seem like these people became your friends and they became your family. And, and that's pretty, I mean, just amazing. Uh, not just because of their cultural significance, but also just you're sort of uh, this, uh, not you're from Los Angeles, but you're kind of a suburban girl who just, you know, kind of is, is you know, creates your own destiny to get into this world. And now, and I have to ask, how did you meet Diamond Furstenberg? That was through Andy. That was through Andy. So, okay. So when you actually become a part of, when, how long before you start working at the factory or, or what, was, what, what was it like? This is really amazing because uh, I met him in November, December, December of 1973. And Vincent Fremont, who's always done the archiving at the factory, he would always have a camera archiving everything. And a few years ago, he said, you know, I just uh, edited an 18-minute piece in the factory with you in it. 18 minutes. For me, it was July of, of 74. So I got there in December of 73. By July of 74, I was doing uh, the first drag queen makeups on Bob Colicello. Wow. The prototypes. For the, and it was at the factory. 
And I was just like, I cannot believe that it was so fast. Right. You know, I, I got a job almost immediately at a clothing store because that's all I had ever done. And mm -hmm. on the first day, this woman came in and she said, I can't believe you sold me all these clothes. Well, I could sell you your, your dress back to you, but <laughs> I can't believe you sold me all these clothes. If you ever need a job, I'm national training director for Estee Lauder. I thought Estee Lauder was the queen, her, her cosmetics. Mm -hmm. So I quit that afternoon went and got a job at Bloomingdale's with this woman at Bloomingdale's, 28 people around the counter. And on the first day, I just came around the counter and started doing makeup. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I knew what looked good. Hmm. So I just started doing makeup and I... So, so okay, that, that, that's really amazing because we're talking Bloomingdale's New York. I mean, yes. at, a t at a time when it is, it is it, we're the, a paragon of high society and, and, and a fashion and culture. And you just trust your instincts that you know what looks good. And yeah. I'm sure you looked fabulous. And I'm sure a part of your taste had to do with how you dressed and how you did your own makeup. I mean, am I, is that... Is that that's true. Yeah, I mean, I just take me through that day. Did you automatically say, okay, I'm good at this? Or, or did you fail a little bit? I don't know if I feel, I don't even know if I, um, if I registered that okay. Okay. time, but I did know there was a lot I didn't know. Mm. I mean, at that moment in time, I just remember everyone would say, is that a water base or an oil-based foundation? I didn't know what a foundation was because that wasn't part of my regime. I put stripes up your cheeks and, you know, a lot of eye makeup and eyelashes and stuff. But, um, Oh, I don't know. Hold on. <laughs> and because your job is to sell cosmetics, for me, the way to sell cosmetics is, you know, you would look really great. And I'm a salesperson. Mm. You're intuitive as to what will look good on someone and what they need at the time. Mm -hmm. So I just came around the counter and I was selling so much cosmetics. I was their number one salesperson every day as well. But I was having a great time. And one day, Andy calls me up and he goes, oh, Gigi, you should call up Diane von Furstenberg. She's starting a cosmetic line and she's opening a, a salon on Madison Avenue. You, you need to call her and get a job with her. And I was like, okay. Hello, Diane. Um, she says, you know, I really don't need anybody. I've got everybody that's working here. I don't need anybody. I said, well, I'll work for free. Wow. So she started me at $125 a week and no one had worked in retail. I had spent the last eight years of my life in uh, retail, managing a clothing store. Now I'm managing a cosmetic store and we're doing the cosmetics out of the store. So I started doing makeups by mail and we happened to have a makeup artist who worked there besides me. I wasn't a makeup artist yet. A makeup artist who was, you know, he, he gave lessons. He did makeups for special occasions. We had two makeup rooms. And he studied under uh, Way Bandy. Way Bandy was the god of makeup. He did hmm. shading. And he's still probably in the history of fashion makeup the best there, there ever was. And do you think that's where you sort of started to learn more the more craft of makeup was from from this gentleman who worked for Way Bandy. What was, do you remember what his name was? Or Nicholas Gershio. <laughs> Nicholas Gershio, what a great yeah. name! And he was like, "I'm going to show you this. I'm going to show you that." 
um, he showed me how to shade a nose and my eye wasn't trained. It literally took me close to a year before I could see it. It's like, I, I can't see the Batman symbol in the sky. I can't see the negative space very well. It doesn't compute on first pass. And the shading on the nose did not compute for a long, long time. Now I can see it. Sure. Now I can do it in my sleep. I just have to ask, what gave you the idea that, okay, I can do movies. I mean, obviously you must be very confident because you can, you're self-actualizing and creating yourself and becoming a, finally becoming a makeup artist. And then was there a moment where you said, okay, I want to do this. Or did you once again, fall, did you fall into it or sort of was it? Fell into it. Mm-hmm. I, um, working with Diane, she brought me into print, you know, come and do my makeup. I've been doing her makeup for other things. Come and do my makeup. That was the start of that. And that went just like, way right. up. So you did Diane von Furstenberg's makeup. You were her, you were her personal. That. And, and co-wrote her first beauty book and went on 17 city book tour with her. And we opened the cosmetics all over the whole United States. One day she says to me, we're both, we're probably on our 40th makeup, doing makeup in the department stores. Mm. We have, uh, you know, we sell tickets. We're doing makeup and we're also selling, this is the best part, selling feminism. It was 1976. Mm-hmm. And we are teaching these women that they have power, that they don't need a man to survive, that they should spend seven minutes on their makeup and then get their stuff together and live. Yeah. You know, take control of their lives. I, so empowering. I just have to say for a second, it's I really want people who, you know, particularly younger listeners, if they listen to this, to understand that Diamond Furstenberg is one of the icons of feminism, of fashion, of business. She's such an amazing woman. And that idea of this wrap dress, this this affordable dress that all of a sudden everyone could have and everyone could be New York chic, it's really, again, she changed culture. And and I always think of, in relation to you, whenever I rewatch Taxi Driver, when Sybil Shepard is walking in slow motion, in that Diane von Furstenberg dress. Yes. You know, the red and white dress. And it, 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 so it's really something that you worked for her. And what do you think she taught you, you know, uh, before you sort of uh, left working well, with her? She did say to me one day as we were doing all these makeup, she looks at me and she goes, hmm, you thought you were makeup artists before, but now you know you are one. Because we were doing so many makeups. Right. What a great, uh, what a great experience to just keep working on all these different faces and finding ways of making things work. And then in the studio, when you're doing print, you spend the whole day on one photograph. Hmm. You are minute by minute watching the lights change and you're taking Polaroids because this is before digital. And so Hmm. you're lighting for three, four hours. You're, You're tweaking down to the smallest, minutest little detail. And I'm... I was so lucky to have that because I can walk into a room and, and know the lighting and whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be bad. And mm-hmm. I've had many, you know, not pleasant discussions when I was first starting out with directors who just didn't know what they were, you know, it was, it was difficult. So anyway, I, I did this, I did print and Diane just taught me to love myself, go forward, mm. trust myself, follow my dream. Mm. And we were, we were very close. We're, we're still in contact. Um, we were very close. We're, in, we're close in age. We're only three, three years apart. Wow. 
And I mean, so, it, yeah. Oh no, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, it also seems like that makeup experience was almost like you're like, you know, it's like someone who learns to shoot movies on film, you yes. know, be, be, it, meaning you have a really grounded sense of, of makeup and what it does and at a micro level. I mean, it's almost like this was this, this beginning was a perfect preparation for David Fincher so many years later. <laughs> it really was. It really was. Uh, and so, so, so from there, how did you, how did you get your first, cause something I, I, I completely had blanked on was that your first movie is with Brian De Palma. So well, how, and so how, how, two things, how did you really just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work again. I know you fell into it, but yet when you, and then, and then what was it like to start out working with Brian De Palma? First of all, I've always looked, I've always watched movies for the director. I like direct, well-directed film. That to me is the, is the crux of it. I've always looked to work with directors. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, Brian De Palma was very, forward and hip and you know cutting edge and hey who wouldn't want to work with sure sure but i'm i'm doing print and i hate it so i'll only work four days a week my agent's like going you won't work on friday i said not if i work on monday i i can only work four days i don't like this job but i was getting paid a hell of a lot of money so and i was learning so one day my girlfriend who worked at we magazine she was a stylist over at Wii. She said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to costume design for this Brian De Palma movie. And his wife, Nancy Allen, is in it. And so is Kirk Douglas. And Nancy needs a lot of makeup, but he doesn't want her to look like she's wearing any makeup. Do you want to come and try out? I was like, yeah, sure. So I got the job. Wow. And so it was The Fury. No, it was no. no one's. I don't think anyone's ever even seen this movie. It's called Brian De Palma's Home Movies, oh, and it okay. was a student film. Right, the we one did that it, he did it at Sarah Lawrence. Yes. Ah. Yes. So there was five or six students mm. from Sarah Lawrence, and then there was the gaffer, the DP, probably the grip, me, sound. We were all professionals. Mm. Very, you know at the beginning of our game professionals. So we all went and, you know, lived in a dorm and did this movie at Sarah Lawrence. That's it's fat. And for people who don't realize this, this is sort of like a little bit of a, of an ebb in De Palma's career. Uh, uh, and, and, and he sort of goes to Sarah Lawrence where I believe he went to school and he's, be, be, so he becomes a professor and he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm instead of teaching kids film theory, I'm going to teach students to make a film. And he brings in Kirk Douglas and his wife, Nancy Allen, and all of you professionals. Yeah. And, and it's actually in some of the documentary, which is the De Palma documentary. And they show how Kirk Douglas apparently went crazy, you know, was very demanding. And, you know, so what was that like, I guess, A, what was De Palma like? And, and what, what did you learn from him just in that first job? I don't know if David's going to enjoy this, but he reminds me of David. I mean, this is a man who wore, you know, a safari suit, not that David wears a safari suit, but he wears a safari suit. He sits right under the lens in the safari suit with a jug of coffee over here. He's right there in it. And I'm immediately right behind the camera operator, almost on the dolly. And this is where I spent my first 10 or 15 years because I want to see exactly what the camera is seeing so that I can make my tweaks and adjustments. Mm. And you can't tell from over there. There's no video village at this point. There's just your eyes and a Polaroid. 
Wow. So it was, it was pretty incredible. It was great. It was great. And, you know, I walked in, I was like, this is what I want to do. I could feel it in my bones. And that's what making film is really bad. I think Yeah. there are people who work in commercials or work in TV or work in print and they come to a movie and they're like, Oh no, I can't do this. Too much sitting around, too much waiting, mm-hmm. too much. It's not easy. And I was just, it was like driving in that limousine up sixth Avenue. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the thrill I had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one day we were outside shooting up at this building and, and uh, we had already shot out the windows of this building. And Brian had gone to the script supervisor, who was a Sarah Lawrence uh, student, and said, uh, were the drapes open or closed? She said, I don't know. <laughs> and he goes, oh, God. Go ask Gigi. She knows. <laughs> I didn't know I knew. And sure enough, I knew. <laughs> and then that's when I found out that I have this memory, this it's almost it's almost photographic i can see something and it 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 stays in my memory and i know if somebody moves something if it's wrong mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it really helps me with my continuity because i don't even take very many photographs because it's all in my head but he knew he knew and wow. it was a great experience and three days after i finished that i did my next movie which was was that rock and roll high school no that was my third movie my second movie was Oh my God. It was a vampire movie. So yes. that was a trip. And so then you do rock and roll high school, which, which I have to say is one of my very favorite movies. I mean, not, I'm, I'm a huge Ramones fan, but also I just have to say to anyone who hasn't seen it, it's kind of like this anti grease, you know, it, it's, it's this fantastic, almost, it is a high school musical, but with the music of the Ramones. And so what was it like, you know, making that movie, working with the Ramones, did they fight as much as everyone legendarily said they did? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I heard about this movie and we're all hanging out at Max's and, you know, CBGB's and I'm with the punk crowd. And again, you know, going through that door mm. and I hear that the Ramones are going to make a movie. Well, I'm going to make that movie. So I called up the director, Alan Arkish. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to do your movie. And he says, okay, send me your book. So I send him my book, my print book. Mm. He gets back to me like immediately and says, you're overqualified. <laughs> I can't afford you. You're overqualified. Love to have you. Can't afford you. I was like, I'll do it. Cause I was making so much money in print that didn't mm-hmm. matter. And I was going to do this movie. Mm-hmm. So he paid me $200 a week. I made my way to California. I uh, put myself up. Uh, it was a 21 day shoot. Wow. And it was Roger Corman. Right, right, right. right. Ramones, you know, and I did this movie makeup and hair all by myself. Wow. And that's <laughs> it, is that the first time you did that? No, I did, I did my other movies by myself. I see, I see, okay. But this one was particularly big. I mean, Mary Warnoff has a different hairdo in every single scene. She's outstanding in the movie. I mean, her look, I told you before that I think she reminds me of Monica Grossman from from her hairstyle, the yes. Frau's hairstyle. It's, it's so yes. interesting how it echoes her. And she's so terrific in the film. Uh, uh, amazing. Amazing in the film. Every Everybody, and also the, the girl who plays kind of the young hero, totally blank on her name, but I mean, everyone has just got such a distinct style and a look yeah. and and yet it doesn't feel done at all i mean it feels like no one's wearing makeup which i think is also a hallmark of your of your work and it's interesting that when i see that movie and i i watch it 
You know, mm. I watch it every once in a while. I used to watch it once a year because I would go to the Ramones concert at New Year's Eve um, every year. Really? And hang out with them and watch the movie. And um, even when I was nine months pregnant, I went to the <laughs> Palladium to hear the Ramones on New Year's Eve. And to this day, my son really likes the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> no. <laughs> so they were a trip. Uh, Joey, I mean, they each had their own quirks. Uh, I had a, Joey was, do I go there? Joey was, his hair was so dirty. It was disgusting. Oh, right. And yeah. Yeah. So I would brush his hair and then I would look at someone else who was like out of line, like Johnny or something. And I'd say, you're not careful. I'm going to use this on your hair. <laughs> you know, a couple of, uh, which Ramon, I can see his face, a little teeny tiny one. He got busted one night. And I mean, it was just, it was something new every single day. It wow. was something new. And we had so much fun. It was really great. And it comes through in the movie because the movie is so interesting because really it doesn't betray the Ramones. Uh, you know, it's not like they're trying to be the monkeys. It, it really mm -hmm. is their style and their music. And, and, and yet the music just gives the movie such a life. It's just such a great rock and roll, you know, artifact. You know, it's, it's just... Alan, Alan Arkish is really... He is a music whiz. He mm -hmm. knows every song that's ever been made and what the label is and what color the label is and what side of the 45 or the, he's amazing. Now we worked 23 hours a day on Rock and Roll High School. Wow. It was 21 days long. Um, lunch was not very good. It was, we didn't have a budget. It was Roger Corman. And on, I don't know, two weeks into the movie, the director had a heart attack and I got taken to the hospital with pneumonia. We both oh. left the, the movie. And yeah. I did, I finished the film at my house, the house that I was staying at. And the actors would come to me in the morning and I would get up out of bed and I would do them for the day and send them off. And Jane Forth would watch them on the set. <laughs> <laughs> and... And Alan was in the hospital working on music and stuff because he's had a heart attack. And Roger says, I'm not paying you because you're not on the set. Wow. And he goes, what do you think? I had this, this uh, heart attack playing tennis. <laughs> oh my God. Hollywood. <laughs> only, only in Hollywood. That, that so the director of The Howling, he came in to finish that last week. So that's how I met him. Joe Dante. Joe Dante. And then not too long after that, we did The Howling. And now I love The Howling uh, as a, I'm a huge fan of horror films, but this is also a horror film that kind of has, it stands out on two different levels. I mean, one, it's Joe Dante's, I believe, directorial debut, at least. And then also it's such a good script, this idea of essentially a, you know, a, a killer who you find out is a werewolf and he's hiding at a wellness spa. <laughs> that is run by a doctor and is getting people to turn into werewolves. I mean, it's so strange and kind of uh, uh, takes the kind of new age thing and twists it and turns it on its head. But then you also have really groundbreaking effects by Rob Bottin, who is a genius and, a, and a, just a wizard and did all the effects on the thing, which still to this day are probably the greatest practical effects ever. And I just, I'm so curious then you, so you bring all of your, of your fashion experience and craft and, and, and makeup, 
artistry to then work with a really wonderful special effects makeup artist. And what was that like? And how did that change your approach and your perspective? Well, he, um, you know, you're not a part of his crew. You're there. I can watch. I can, but he's, he's very tight with the crew. He's got all this stuff that's new that he's working with the faces that grow, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. look down and there's, there's all these tubes coming out mm -hmm. of the head mm -hmm. and they're attached to the mouth of somebody lying on the floor with all of their heads together like this in a circle on the floor. Mm -hmm. And they're blowing these tubes and making the snout move. Wow. Get bigger. It was amazing. Right. Absolutely amazing. And then, but the one scene that does stand out, I'm so curious if you helped with it or did the makeup in the scene is when she meets Eddie at the end and it's just before he changes and he has the eyes and he's kind of burned and, and, and he's, he, it's really a great performance. You know, he's not a werewolf yet. And I, and I, it always stands out because it doesn't, it feels like a real person who's in pain. You know, he's more like a junkie or a drug addict or, you know, somebody who's mentally ill. And I'm wondering, did you, did you help with the makeup in that scene before he transformed? Yeah, um, Rob, uh, Greg Canham, mm. who was another amazing special effects makeup person. I think he has three Oscars. He designed the look of that young werewolf. Mm -hmm. Part of it, because I did his, I made his eyes two different colors and yeah. I blew his brows. Right. Those were mine. Maybe he showed me the another beard trick, but I do remember he... I do remember him passing on something on that young werewolf. I'm in that last scene where she's at the 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 uh, theater. Oh yeah. I'm 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 Ellen the makeup artist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and also just just before we move on from the howling, D Wallace, who obviously everyone knows as the mom in ET, is fabulous in the howling. And it's really an incredible performance. And the movie actually has one of the great kind of almost get out level shock endings. You know, the, the ending is so like, whoa, oh my God, this is, a, it's a satire. Howling is like a really fantastic satire. Uh, uh, and I wanted to ask you, cause I know you, you worked on Tales from the Dark Side and I think you worked on what is Jodie Foster's first directing yes. job? Yes, that's whoa. very good. What was that like? She was great. She mm. was really terrific. I then worked on Flight Plan later on with her. Oh, right, 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 right. She's brilliant. She was, she's brilliant. And it was, you know, that show was incredible because you got to meet so many people. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. many actors traveled through that. Mm -hmm. And there were so many different scripts and ideas. And, you know, it's, it's very creative. Yeah, I used to I used to stay up as a kid and watch it. You know, I'm I'm a died in the wool Stephen King and Twilight Zone fan, and Tales from the Dark Side was one of those kind of like outer limits, or yes. you know, you know, kind of an in between. And you know, we had two uh, companies working on that. We had a California company and we had a New York company. Oh wow, wow. Yeah. So we were really just you know shoving them out there. Wow, well, and they were, they were all they were all terrific. I mean, they were really well done as well. I mean, for for uh, you know, it was almost reminded me of, it was Creep Show before Creep Show. You know, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so then I wanted to talk about the professional because this is the movie that you meet and work for the first time with Gary Oldman. Yes. And how did that project come to be? Let's see. That was a French project that came to New York. Mm -hmm. um, my girlfriend. Cecilia Roquet was the UP, the New York UPM. She put me up for it. 
met Luc Besson, mm -hmm. got the job, was thrilled. Really and truly, Gary Oldman has been my favorite actor my whole life. My whole life. What was the movie that you saw that you first saw that you said, oh my God, this guy, I love this guy? You know, I it could have been Chattahoochee. Oh. I, I don't. I don't remember. I know that True Romance had not been out yet because the first thing when he found out I was a fan, he said, "Oh, you're gonna love me and you know as a as a Rasta guy, as a oh. Rastafarian with a gold tooth." Um, I don't know what I first saw him in, but he was my favorite mm -hmm. actor, mm -hmm. and it was such a thrill working with him because his mother was there, and he and his mother would be in the trailer, and he likes he's a song and dance man. So he and his mother would do song and dance behind me in the trailer, entertaining the whole time. So great. He's like a true Charlie Chaplin. He's like true a Charlie Chaplin. And he's such an incredible actor. He's the type of actor that he doesn't, you don't see him working. He works very hard, but you don't see him working. So <laughs> we're out on the set and he's telling a joke. And this is the day he comes into the apartment and he shoots everybody. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, we're in there and Luke Besson is a bit of a, you know, he's a wild man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, Gary's telling this joke. And right before he, oh, he says to me, watch this, watch this. So he's got something in mind because he knows that I like to, the process of acting. He knows I like, I like to watch the acting. This is why I'm really in film. Mm -hmm. A lot of it. I love the process of acting. I love the whole storytelling and how it all comes together. Mm -hmm, so he mm -hmm. says, watch this. So anyway, he's telling this joke and they say action. And he turns around and does his, he does his little bit. And then he comes back. They say, they say cut. And he finishes the joke on cue. He doesn't miss a beat. It's like, what actor does that? Well, what he was going to show me was the camera was up there looking down. It's when he does his. Oh, yeah, yeah. What are you Bingo. Oh, my God. Wow. It was so amazing. Because basically he takes this pill and yeah. then starts to kind of. And then he looks up at the ceiling as if to crack and pop his neck. So he knows the camera's up there and he sees it. So amazing. Just so amazing. Because that performance is so terrific, too, because I think for a long time, people didn't realize he was English, right? Because of that movie, you know, because he's, I don't got time for this Mickey Mouse bullshit, you know? <laughs> and you're like, wait, is he from New York? And then he did State of Grace and all these fabulous movies where he kind of played in New York, almost like Tim Roth a little bit. It was State of Grace, the first movie I saw of his. Oh, God, with the long hair and the wet. It's like, it's him and Sean Penn, I believe. It's, it's yeah. in, in yeah. Hell's Kitchen as yeah. Irish thugs. Yeah, incredible. And it's based on a true story. You know, that's yeah. a teamster that he's playing who would go up to Harlem and knock people off. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, he was so, 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 so when you're talking about acting and working with actors, I think it's so fascinating because I think part of what people really don't understand about someone like you and artists like you is that you are working so closely with them to craft their character physically, which is what an actor is doing quite, I would say 50% of the job is behavior, if not more, you know, how, how an actor works. So when you're working with Gary on a character like that, what are you kind of working through? You know, is it everything from skin tone to sweat to pallor? All of it. All of it. And it changes by the scene. You know, uh, like, okay. What are we doing in the scene today? You've got to know where you are, mm -hmm. whether you are sweaty, whether you're, you know, 
anything that's going to happen, you're prepared for. Is there going to be blood, blah, blah, blah. Um, and for me, I, I do get involved with the actors in the fact that depends, it depends on the actor, not every actor you can talk to, but if it's really good and you're like, Whoa, that was so incredible. And then they take whatever it is from there. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when I worked with Matt Dillon, Matt Dillon, I loved from the first moment I ever met him. I did a movie called Kansas with him. That was the first movie. Mm-hmm. And Matt has no confidence at all. He will ask, he will go through the whole crew. How was that? How was that? How was that? How was that? Next thing you know, is that in craft service? How was that? How was that? How was that? Gary <laughs> 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 is not like that. But, you know, there, there are actors who need that. Who um, there's a lot of trust between you guys, you know, between you and the actor. I, I did this movie called, oh, actually, it was that movie. No, that was The Pickle, The Pickle with um, Shelly Winters. Mm. Okay. First day on the, on the job, we're in Brighton Beach. Shelly's the mother of Danny Aiello. And they're going to hug over here like they haven't seen each other in a long time. And right before action, Shelly Winters, who has to have everything she sees, turns around and sees some guy walking by her with a hot dog filled with sauerkraut. And she grabs the the hot dog from him. She takes a bite of the hot dog with the sauerkraut, gives it back to him. And now she's got sauerkraut sticking out of her teeth. <laughs> Action! Oh my God! So she goes over to to hug Danny Aiello, who is hugging her, but she's now pushing his head away so that she has all the camera time. Wow! And she's hugging him, and she raises an eyebrow. She just she raises an eyebrow, and I get covered in goosebumps, and I'm in love. I'm in love with her. I, she's like a goddess to me mm-hmm. because she's so good. A lot of demons, but she's so good. Mm-hmm. I said to her, that's amazing. She says, you must be an actress. I said, no, I'm not an actress. I just like the, the process of acting. And uh, I then sent a PA out to get 10 boxes of uh, toothpicks. One of which I still have. And that was in... Yeah, 1994 or something. I mean, and and that's just an example of an actor who just is using everything at their disposal. You know, every single thing becomes a part of the of the scene. I mean, that that's that's just amazing. I mean, and for people who don't realize Shelley Winters, I mean, everything from Night of the Hunter to Lolita, you know, to some of the great performances ever on screen. So the fact that you got to work with her, what like that's just real. And that was uh, Paul. Paul Mazursky directed. Oh wow, wow! I love Bob Carroll, Ted Nallis. It's yeah. and also I love Down Mountain Beverly Hills. I think it's one of the great satire. He's such a fabulous director. Well, mine is The Pickle, not one that anybody's ever seen. I need to see it. I haven't seen it either. I need to see it. I'm embarrassed I haven't seen it. Every once in a while, I, I, a PA will come up to me and go, "The Pickle." <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> so excited! <laughs> and really, working with Paul Mazursky was the most fun I've ever had on a movie. It seems like it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. 
it seems like it would be. I mean, he was such an actor's director, but yet of he reminds me a lot of Danny DeVito. It, yeah. it, it just in terms of in terms of his his prowess as an actor and his freeness with the actors, but also he's a superb technical director. Because I heard once that Mazursky actually, you know, he does these comedies and dramas like comedies, but he storyboards everything. Yeah. And I thought, wow, you know, he's doing dramas and comedies. You would never think to storyboard that kind of stuff. But but that always, I thought that was so interesting because someone to be as loose as he is as an actor and a performer, but as controlled as a, as a director, I thought that was such a wonderful thing to be able to hold in both hands as an artist. He also makes a newspaper every week <laughs> <laughs> with all the gossip and made up stories about the crew. <laughs> Honestly, I'll have to send you some because they're hilarious. I, I mean, again, that's just, and that's such a uh, you know part of the reason I this, I started this podcast was to sort of communicate to people the the kind of circus family that forms on a movie set and and the love that you find with the people you work with because you work with them constantly. That's such a perfect example of dad making the <laughs> newspaper. That's yeah. really cool. <laughs> so okay, before we before we get to David Fincher. I just wanted to kind of like briefly go through, because as you said, you really do pick projects based on the directors and, and you love working with directors. And that is what seems to turn you on as a filmmaker and an artist. And I just wanted to kind of go through a few of the directors who, who you've worked with that I, I certainly love the, the work you've done in the films and just kind of hear what, what, they, what you might've learned from them or what you might've taught them. You know, I wanted to start with Tom Ford on A Single Man because I think it's a remarkable movie. And just and talk a little bit about what it was like to work with Tom Ford. Well, originally Tom wanted his his uh, beauty fashion people to work on it, but they wanted forty thousand dollars a day. So um, the production manager was a friend of my friend Kate Bisco, who said, "Gigi, you want to do this Tom Ford movie?" And I was like, "Well, yeah." And Tom and I had known each other peripherally, you know, mm -hmm. through Studio 54 and Warhol and things. So we never really were close. And he's a frustrated hairdresser. So he's in the trailer for three weeks of prepping with his hands in the hair and the brushes. And, and he's an artist. Mm -hmm. So it was incredible. On the first day, it was, it was another 21-day shoot. Wow. Way too short. So we're out in the desert and we've done this flashback scene with, with shiny sun-kissed shoulders on the two guys and really beautiful stuff. And then we do the, the uh, car wreck mm -hmm. at night. Mm -hmm. And Tom comes up to me and he says, so Shushi, what did you think? I said, oh my God, we made art today. And we did, we made art today because he's, very, he looks at a frame, he'll move the flower over this much, he'll move a pair of shoes closer to the bed. I mean, it's all mm -hmm. scripted visually for him, which is great. Mm. And um, he says, well, I hope we make art every day. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> we did. No, we did. Wow. And, and uh, Kate did, what's his name? The English lead actor in that. Uh, Colin Firth. Colin Firth. And then uh, this makeup artist came in to do Julia or whatever her name is. Julianne Moore, yeah. And I did everyone else in the movie. Every single person in the movie. And had just a fabulous time. It was kind of my period, a little before my period where I grew up, you know, uh, the 60s. What do you mean, what do you mean by that? What do you, what do you mean, yeah? 
Well, the 60s period was always my favorite, you know, and I was 18 in 1968. So oh, you mean you mean the movie period you were working yeah. in connected yeah. to your life was this period when you grew up. So you were able to kind of connect to that. Oh, I know exactly where I was going with all of that. Wow. Just I that eyeliner, those eyelashes, that, you know, lipstick, the everything. Everything was already in my mind. I was always already there. And because it was such a piece of art and Nicholas Holt was so amazing. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That pink sweater he wears, the whole thing, his face. And you know, he's pale as an Englishman. Mm. All Mm. of that is, is, is my makeup. Wow. His man. Because they live in Malibu. Mm. And you have to, it's a perfectionist thing. I mean, it, it was a painting doing his face and, and body. It was really amazing. And of course we have all the other characters as well. It was, it was. I mean, it's an extraordinary movie because the look of it, the style of it has so much emotion. It's not really just a lot of movies. They look wonderful, et cetera, but that film, it, it, it's like looking at old photographs. It evokes, it's a lot, you know, the, the, the life and the, the secret life of all those characters. Uh, and particularly the spaces that all the characters inhabit are so wonderful, you know, particularly his, the, the house with all the green fronds and, uh, and that house is eight minutes from my house. It was the only time in my whole career I've ever shot near my house. Wow. And I think my favorite piece of design in the whole movie, though, is the is the billboard when he meets oh. the young man, because that was like to me, that was like an almond of our film. You know, I, I, I it was just outstanding filmmaking. It was pretty exciting. Uh, and then let's talk about Argo, because, you know, it's 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 an amazing movie. It won Best Picture. And what was it like to work with Ben Affleck and, and also that cast? Because I think you did everybody. I mean, and that cast is is nuts. I mean, everybody from Alan Arkin to John Goodman to Brian Cranston to uh, 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 Scoot McNary and Carrie Bechet, it's really quite something. What I did was, all those. I did all those people. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. I, I, I think I read that. I just <laughs> when we went to Paris, uh, or not Paris, Turkey, we stayed in this really beautiful hotel and Kate Bisco was with me again on this. Uh, she dragged me along. I was her second. She was doing Ben and I... At three o'clock in the morning, we had to be down in the basement of this hotel. And she did Ben and usually went out and I did all the rest of them. Wow. And it was, it was great. I mean, it was an incredible uh, cast. Alan Arkin, I am absolutely in love with. I, Me too. <laughs> oh my God. And he's just the nicest man and he's political and he's, he's just got a wicked sense of humor and I find him to be one of the sexiest men on on the planet. I <laughs> just amazing. So that was, was incredible. And I and Scoot was great. You know, mm, I bumped absolutely. into Scoot all the time. He, in fact he was in Gone Girl. Mm, yeah, oh yeah, he's great in it. Um all of them. I mean I've seen all of them. And that was <laughs> I remember sitting in the production meeting and we're talking about 700 850 extras in in iran for the you know the original mm-hmm. part where they the the embassy is taken yes over. yes yes where they storm the embassy yeah and then, yeah and then we're going to go to turkey and we're going to shoot the exterior basically the other part of it mm-hmm. and we're gonna have 12 1400 people there <laughs> mind you i've always done small movies mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like the, I like little stories, you know. I, I do little little 
labor of loves. And all of a sudden, there's 1,500 people. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so big. And we did it. We did it. And we had to put, I called every extra in that movie. Besides doing those, those actors, I, mm -hmm. I called every extra in that movie to say, please don't shave. Don't pluck your eyebrows. Don't shave your beards. Don't edge anything. Don't shave your necks. The background was very interesting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I had to tell them all that because in that time, if you didn't have stubble or a little bit of a beard, the Ayatollah would come and they would arrest you because mm -hmm. you were Western uh, collaborators. Wow. And more than likely, you wouldn't have made it out from wherever they arrested you. So it was very important that these um, Iranian expats is actually what we were shooting in California. We went mainly to, Ir to Irvine, mm -hmm. and they cast all these people who left when the Shah left. Wow. So it was an interesting bunch. They all had to have uh, stubble put on them. We did a flecking kind of thing where we just filled in their faces and a lot of them didn't want to do that it was it was a weird group of people to to work with very stubborn very mm -hmm. um they were going to do it their way you would, mm -hmm. the pa would say to an actor okay stay right there and then ben is going to come through the scene and the next thing you know that guy is following ben so close because he's going to have his face on the camera the whole time wow and it's like Whoa. So one guy comes in and he had his beard shaved like this. You know? And I said, uh, listen, when you come in tomorrow, if you wouldn't shave your, they, they told me to shave. They told me to shave. I said, really? Who's they? And he goes, oh, are you Gigi? <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> so then we went to uh, Turkey, which was, the greatest gift. I mean, I've been to China. I've never thought to go to Turkey. It wasn't someplace that I ever aspired to go to. And that's where my family's from. Really? Yeah. That's it, why I have this, this crazy name, Aaron, and both my first and last name are Turkish. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Because our lead makeup artist in um, Turkey is Aaron. Oh, Aaron. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yes. Yeah. A wonderful woman. Absolutely wonderful woman. I had 25 makeup and hair people in Turkey. Wow. Working. Wow. And we did all of those extras. They told us we didn't have to, but of course they kept bringing them in and out. We ended up having to, I must've done 10 hours of makeups that day. And all of the, the uh, Turkish people did as well. Wow. wow. It was really, really incredible. And they were so amazing. I fell in love with Turkey. I wanted to go back. We had actually arranged the one of the hairdressers and I had arranged to go back and and do classes because they were so receptive and so wonderful. And mm -hmm. they smoked cigarettes and drank, you know, stolashnaya. And they were just starting to wear veils. Yeah. And so there was this whole, sh mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. they're wearing a veil. Oh, they're not wearing a veil. You know, yeah. And yeah. I wanted those under the veils. I made these ladies take off their veils for me. Uh, it was. It was magnificent. Yeah. Magnificent. It's quite oh. a country. Yeah, it's quite a country. It's 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 particularly the whole Asiatic and European mix, you know, where where it all comes together. It's 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 really fascinating. We shot at the Grand Bazaar. We took oh, it yeah. over four nights. Wow. 
um, you know, the fact that you're in China over here and the Mediterranean mm -hmm. over here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. I can't tell you how many recordings I have of prayer time because it's mm -hmm. just so beautiful. I mean, you mm -hmm. have to stop. And it starts in one part of the of the city and it moves, you can feel it moving around and it's sort of like this, this singing ballet. It's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so magical. Yeah. So magical. The food. Oh, oh my God, the food. It's incredible. Incredible. And I, there's a, a carpet seller who still calls me once a year. I'm in San Francisco. Are you ready for another carpet? <laughs> <laughs> I sure you can, you can understand that. <laughs> First shopping mall in the whole, the whole world. That's true. That is very, very true. It's very true. And I think what's wonderful about Argo, your experience on Argo, is that it clearly has sort of prepared you for some of the other period work you did because the 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 last director I'll talk about before we get to to David is you know you you've worked with Paul Thomas Anderson, who I'm just a huge fan of. I mean he's probably one of my favorite living filmmakers. Uh, and you worked on both The Master and Inherent Vice. And what was it like to talk about entering a world? You know a creative family. Uh, what was it like to work with with not only with Paul Thomas Anderson but also with Amy Adams and the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman and then Joaquin Phoenix. It was magical. I mean, I knew who Paul was. I had gotten called for Paul's first movie, Heart Eight. And it's so funny because it's, it's old enough that it was put to me and it's starring uh, Brad Pitt's girlfriend. Oh, yeah, right, right. Who is Goop Girl. Yep, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, but she didn't have a name yet. Right, she, right. She, she was his girlfriend. Right. Right. I ended up not doing that film. I don't remember why, but I didn't. And then I, Kate brought me in again on this one. She uh, did Joaquin at the beginning. And uh, Philip, who's one of my favorite actors mm. ever. I mean, he's another one of those magical guys. Mm -hmm. He's off to the side for the prep time and for weeks as when we started shooting over in a corner, practicing his uh, monologues wow. and his movements and looking for his voice. And what a joy to be able to watch that. I mean, that's your own personal show. Mm -hmm. So incredible. And then you never knew which one of those bits or which one of those pieces of his character were going to come out in that scene and you'd be just watching wrapped and go <gasps> because he never did what was expected. He always, always, always surprised you. Wow. Just an amazing actor. And Amy and I had worked with on a Muppets movie, but I didn't do her for that. So we already knew each other. Okay. And that was really beautiful. I, she was supposed to look like she didn't have any makeup on. You know, this mm -hmm. is the uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard and his family. Mm -hmm. And what was it like to work with Paul? I mean, what was that? Paul's you know, great. I mean, how how does it work? I mean, does he give you sort of uh, 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 you know room to collaborate, and 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 or 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 do you feel like once again you're kind of serving a vision, or how, how would you describe that experience? First rule is. Um, he hates makeup and hair. He's totally intimidated by it. He can't even come in the trailer and uh, doesn't want anything to do with it. Continuity, who cares? But 
you know, Paul's movies are really, really special. And mm -hmm. he has a vision. You know, I had read the script for Boogie Nights and I couldn't do that either. I oh, couldn't, wow. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't work on a movie that has that much nudity and the subject matter is, mm -hmm. I'm a feminist. I, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I would, I would mm -hmm. probably punch him out in my mind after reading the script. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the master was the most beautiful. Oh my God. We set up for a 50 foot dolly shot. Mm coming along as as Joaquin's character oh, comes to the boat comes here, to the boat jumps on the boat and the boat goes out and mm -hmm. it goes around and we catch that whole thing mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. right before we get there Paul is playing this kind of 40s jazz kind of music mm -hmm. to get it going and he played kind of that music in different places and so on the weekends, I would look for that music to play in the trailer. And I could never find anything that I really liked this one weekend when I was trying. So Monday morning, I'm at work and there's a knock on the trailer door. JJ. Yeah. And I go out and it's Paul and he goes, I have something for you. And he had five CDs with the music, with the music. And I looked at him and I said, how did you know I was looking for that music? I don't know. I just thought you'd like this. And he doesn't have a lot of words for a lot of people. I mean, we, huh. I feel like we clicked immediately. The sensibility is there. Um, you know, you know when to go in and when not to go in. When we did Inherent Vice, that was a rough movie. And it was rough for him because he was constantly second guessing Pinochet. Oh, Pinchon, Thomas Pinchon. Yeah, yeah. Pinchon, who I had never read before. And he's he was difficult for me to read Trust, he's just he's difficult for everyone i think i, I it's 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 quite a mystery it took me a a week to read it the first time and i think i had to read it four times before i really absorbed mm -hmm. it but again mm -hmm. i knew this period so well because this is when i was hanging out in hollywood at lovins and beans mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know this was that period again and that was inherent vice and so one day I did what I thought I read, what I felt from where we were. And Paul comes over and he goes, oh, this is the first time he'd ever changed any of my makeup. We, I, whatever I presented him, he always, it was what he wanted. Mm -hmm, we read mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. And on this one, he turned around one day and he goes, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I can't. And I said, Paul, I'm having a really tough time. I, I'm second guessing myself constantly. And that's not how I work. And he goes, I'm second guessing myself too. And that's what was happening. It was really a hard wow. move to do. And yet it was really beautiful and it was fun. And I love working with Paul. I really love working with him. He's, hmm. He brings out so much in the actors. He he gives the actors so much space, mm -hmm. so much encouragement. And he's funny because he, one day he's just saying, oh, my God, you know everyone. Because whoever was coming in, oh, yeah, I know them. Oh, my God. You know everyone, he says. And he doesn't really call many people by their names. But he's always, JJ, JJ. 
Luc Besson used to do that too. And I turned to the make, the French makeup artist one day and I said, God damn it, if he screams my name one more time, I'm going to kill him. And she goes, I have done five movies with him. He does not even know my name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take it. And, and basically that's Paul. So at, just as he was finishing that sentence, the elevator door opens and in walks his wife. And she goes, Gigi, how are you? <laughs> Hilarious. That, that is really wonderful. That is, yeah. so, that is fantastic. Uh, okay, so now let's talk about Mr. David Fincher and your work with him and specifically, obviously, Mank. And I, I just, so how, how did you meet David Fincher? Well, again, it's Kate Biscoe. She got the job because um, on Gone Girl, Ben Affleck was going to do this other movie. And so we had a job. Mm-hmm. And then at the last minute, Ben decided he wanted to work with, with David on Gone Girl. And now we didn't have a job. And he was nice enough to hire us. Wow. So that's how I met him. And again, I did everybody. Kate did Ben. And there were days where I had six women to get ready in the morning. It was amazing. And then I met my, she's my assistant now, but she was a, she was a PA in Missouri. Her father is, is part of our family. She's mm-hmm. the accountant. So she started working with us and she was so good at the age of 21 that she would do a couple of the women. She's still with me. She did half of Mank. Mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. deserves half of it. Is she Audrina or? Yes. Michelle right. Audrina Kim. Michelle, Michelle Audrina Kim, right. She's amazing. 27 years old. Wow. Just wow. Um, So anyway, I um, we did Gone Girl. And then the next project, and I, I working with, with David was a lot of fun. You have to stand right behind him. You have to be very close. You have to see every moment. You can't get busted looking at your phone. Mm-hmm. You're there to support him, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to, to uh, contribute. Mm-hmm. So we did that movie. And then he was going to do this project. Actually, I cried at the end of that. I gave him a hug at the end of that movie. And I started crying because at that point... I loved him as a filmmaker so much. After Just, Gone Girl or after this other after, project? After Gone Girl. After I mean, Gone Girl. It was really hard to leave. I just, I felt, he knows everything. He knows every craft. He knows every movement. He knows every kind of makeup. He knows every kind of filter. He knows every kind of light. He knows every, he knows everything. Mm-hmm. And to have somebody with, that much knowledge and a wicked sense of humor Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this ability and this uh, lust or passion to teach because he'll hold seminars teaching you Mm -hmm. film history and all sorts of wonderful stuff. And I think what's interesting is that I've said this before, because I think, I think people love to 
who don't know him or just sort of observe Fincher from the sort of legendarily he take he's a hundred takes and meticulous and controlling, et cetera, et cetera. And and I think Kubrick used to get the same kind of grief, which was, oh, he does millions of takes, he doesn't know what he wants, he's controlling, et cetera. And then when you really dig into it, you realize, you know, two things is that when you can shoot something that many times or take that much time, you're actually giving everyone freedom, you know, to try things to fail. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And the actors, what happens to them is they're used to doing two takes and moving on. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're getting 35 takes and they can Mm -hmm. relax. They can completely be absorbed by the character and the scene. They don't even have to think about their words. It's Mm -hmm. just totally natural. Mm-hmm. And David, there'll be 15 minute takes or seven to 15 minute takes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And David will go out and he'll have notes for the whole seven minutes. And he'll go, and I want you to do it. And over here, I want you to lift your hand. And you can see the actress going, I'll never be able to remember that. And they do. It just goes in and it works. And then, you know, we have our little jokes over by the camera. And um, he is, has a wicked sense of humor. And then takes, sorry. No, 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 no. Those takes, if someone in the chain makes a mistake, Mm -hmm. we have to do it over. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the actor who's, who's, you know, messed up. It could be an eyelash fell off or it could be, you know, the light didn't move. The camera dolly didn't make it to his spot. It didn't go fast enough. The, The drapes moved. I mean, it's, Mm-hmm. it's so many moving parts mm-hmm. that one little mess up on each one of those, you got 50 takes <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking for perfection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it has to match completely to the one we did before because heaven forbid in the editing room, he can't just go and put it together because that's his style, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is amazing. So everybody has to be perfect and you know, That's pretty incredible. When you've got somebody who's behind you telling you, you could do that better. Hmm. Um, I had to beat somebody up, an old lady. I had to beat her to a pulp for for Mindhunter. And she's old and she's got a lot of skin. and, And I put on pieces and you could see some of my edges. And we went out and David goes, I can see edges. Go do it again. Okay. Come back out. Uh, I see another edge over here. Go do it again. Um, You know, she's old, so you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to move her face or something so that it doesn't sag or blah, 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 because he knows it all. Okay. So he hired somebody who just came out, and I did this every day. He let me practice until I was blue in the face, and I got it right. Wow. On that day, he came came up to me, and he goes, Gigi? You just give Rob Bottin a run for his money. <laughs> Whoa! That is so great. That is, see, I love that 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 this story that he's also as much a teacher as he is, you know, uh, a perfectionist. Because that's the whole point. I think of filmmaking is learning. You know, you're every single time out, right? You're you're getting better. It's another chance to do it. To to do it better, right? And 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 it just it it yeah. It so reminds me of Stanley Kubrick. There was a great story in that documentary uh, where the famous costume designer Milana Milena Caninera, right? Yeah. 
says, uh, when we were doing Clockwork Orange, he had this eight millimeter lens. And she asked him, she said, Stanley, why, do, why are we using a lens that wide? And he then proceeded to spend an hour yeah. right there on the set explaining to her why this lens was the lens, et cetera, et cetera. And well, I mean, that's no director does does that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really amazing to hear that David works like that. And, and it, it just the, the amount of love for the people he works with and the, and the craft on top of making a great movie is really lovely. Uh, then there's the part where you do the film and everybody's just, you know, you're exhausted, but you feel amazing because you've seen this, you've uh, recast people, you've reshot scenes. All of that is part of the storytelling, you know, if, a, if an actor isn't doing well, the camera operator will come up and go, we're going to reshoot that Gigi, aren't we? Like, yeah, I think so. Because <laughs> I'm that part, David and I, I'm pretty much on his same page there, you know, mm-hmm. and we know that he'll throw out a performance and an actor in a heartbeat if he's not getting what he needs. Same thing with anybody who works with him, you know, we, mm-hmm. we do fire about five to seven people at the beginning of every movie. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's. They're not fitting in. Right. Right, 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 right. Chaplin was like that too. There's a great story of he, sh- one of, I think it was like modern times or something. He shot uh, one scene. It's a little girl and a, and a cop. He recast each part three or four times until they got to the, <laughs> got to the, you know, got, got it right. Uh, and so now let's talk about Mink. Okay. Um, when you read that script, what, what was your first reaction, you know, to reading that script, which is, first of all, tell us what Mank is about and, and, and then how, what it was like to, to read that script, which, is, which was written by David Fincher's late father, Jack. Well, it's a story of a witty newspaper guy who comes to Hollywood and gets a job writing film in the Depression, making $1,500 a week. You know, he brought his brother in at $750 a week and you've got bread lines out in front of Paramount Studios where people aren't working at all. It really is the depression. Mm-hmm. And he's hobnobbing with all of the greats of MGM. That's 90 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the golden age of Hollywood. It's mm-hmm. the beginning of all the magic. I don't think there's a... a kid in the world who doesn't dream about MGM at some point, you know, mm-hmm. the clothes, the, the whole studio thing, the, the romance, the box office, pills, um, <laughs> <laughs> drugs, anything right. from the movie. I mean, it has everything. It has everything. So I read this, you know, the script and I'm thinking, Okay, I've always wanted to do black and white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I I thought about, you know, going to the library or whatever for for research. And I thought, I wonder what I have around the house. Because I've got a lot of uh, research books around the house. Mm -hmm. And I had about five feet tall of books on MGM, the the 30s, the 40s, black and white, Mm -hmm. you know, Greta Garbo and blah, 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 blah. I didn't have to go anywhere. I had all the books. <laughs> so I start going through them and I'm pulling out, you know, photos of the people in, in the movie. I go to see my dad one day and he goes, you know, I was cleaning out the garage and I, I don't know if you need this book. And it was the MGM story. 
I was like, oh, Jesus. Everyone. My son said I had a Jones for a black and white 1930s Hollywood movie from the time he was born, which I don't remember, but I guess I did. <laughs> so then I just started looking at them and then the costumes. You work with a costume designer and then David gives you your parameters of what he needs. We're going to use uh, these new filters and everybody has to be a little tan because we need their skin tone to be darker than the whites of their eyes. So that the whites of their eyes pop. I don't want thin eyebrows. I think that was it going in. And knowing David, they had to look as much like that person as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, there was there was Gary who wanted to use, he wanted to become Herman Mankiewicz and shave his head and use a comb over and, you know, do prosthetics and David didn't want him to. He wanted him to be Gary nude, mm-hmm. Gary, nothing between the camera and Gary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is really, really tricky with Gary. Mm-hmm. You know, he hides behind things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was great. He, Gary didn't remember me on, on uh, The Professional. Really? No, I had to call him to make sure that it was okay if I worked on it because he has first refusal in his contract. Hmm. So I'm in Maine with my sister kayaking and hiking and stuff. And I call Gary and I said, so have you ever worked with with David before? He says, no, we used to live together for about a year because they have the same attorney, (laughs) Um, divorce attorney, the same woman. Um, (laughs) So... I said, oh, you've never worked with him. He says, no, have you? And I said, yeah, for about eight years, seven years. And he goes, well, why am I talking to you? Obviously, you're the person for the movie. So, And we ended up having just, we'd never stopped talking from that moment on, just that moment on. He told me everything he wanted to do. I fought for him. David really didn't want to do that. One day I said to him, you know, I'm really glad you didn't we didn't decide to use all the rubber because I don't really like all that rubber. I didn't like you in, in, uh, the Churchill movie. Yeah. Yeah. Darkest hour. And he goes, Mm -hmm. what? (laughs) (laughs) I I hated that movie. I I couldn't even watch you. I couldn't see you. I couldn't find you in all of that. I, I didn't like it at all. So we're doing the tests, you know, David tests everybody up, down, every light. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a long testing process. And right before Dave, um, Gary's going to go out in front of the camera, Gary says something to me. I say something back and he starts to laugh. And David walks by with his wicked sense of humor and says, don't listen to her. She lies. She's a liar. <laughs> and I go, no, I already told him I hated him in the darkest hour. <laughs> <laughs> Gary's just a doll and we're still very close now. I think we'll probably be in the same family now for the rest of our lives. We, it, his wife, uh, Giselle and, and Gary and I, we spent a lot of time together. Gary goes through a huge transformation in this movie. He starts out in the thirties as the man about town, the dapper guy he's got, he can do no wrong. He's a wit. Mm-hmm. And as he starts to get more jaded by Hollywood and he sees that it's a power game and, you know, there's a caste system and it's all rigged, then he gets jaded and drinks more and he uh, has no filter. So he alienates people. He, you know, he meets, 
he meets Marion Davies and he's got a history of platonic relationships with actresses, basically. Mm-hmm. Good friends. He's a really good friend guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he has integrity in a town that doesn't. Um, and so he spirals out of control in his alcoholism. And mm-hmm. so we have to take him. We open up the, the movie and he's lying in bed with a cast from his tits to his toes. And he's in a dry house. Uh, Orson Welles has hired him basically to write Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he won't let him have any alcohol. So Gary has to go, Mank has to go through the DTs. He's miserable. He can't write without his, his alcohol, so he eventually smuggles some in. And then he he does these flashbacks where he goes to a scene from his past life, and then he takes that and sort of incorporates it into uh, Citizen Kane. So when he's writing this in the 40s, he's only like three or four years before he died of Right. Basically, you know, self-abuse. So he looks bad. So mm-hmm. all of that was paint. I would paint dark circles and his capillaries and no foundation and a lot of sweat, three or four different kinds of sweat. And he would have to look, he looked bad. He looked mm-hmm. really bad. And I yeah, had to yeah. do it without too heavy of a hand because with the high contrast that we were using, if you made anything too big, it just looked like, you know, black scribbles all mm-hmm. over the place. So it was interesting to make him look as bad as we thought he was going to look. One day he said, I don't look bad enough. And Giselle and I were like, oh, yeah, you do. You, you really do look bad enough. We took a picture and he looked like he'd been up for a week. Wow. Dark circles and just, you know, red inside the eyes and scruff and it was it was i loved i love that makeup then he jumps into his flashbacks and he's 30 years younger Hmm. in some of them well i can't really make him 30 years younger so i have to give the impression of him being 30 years younger so i use a different foundation something that has some luminescence luminescence i get rid of all his skin imperfections i make him look very clean but not too clean. He doesn't look as polished and clean mm-hmm. as his flashback buddies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because in my mind, he's remembering. Uh, so I'm taking him from drunk and I'm sort of putting him in his flashback. Wow. So that he's re- he's in his flashback, but he's remembering his flashback. It's almost like a Christmas carol. <laughs> yes. It's almost like a Christmas carol. And, and that works really great because I can still keep him a little sweaty. But... I'm not trying to, we're not trying to fuck with time. Mm-hmm. But not mm-hmm. supposed to say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to mess with time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a feeling that you get. It's, it's, uh... So at the end of the movie, he said to me, Gary, which I thought was amazing. He said, Gigi, did you get what you wanted? Did you, do you feel, are you happy? Wow. Gosh. Yeah. I really am happy. I get goosebumps every time we roll camera from the very first day. Somebody asked me the other day when I had an inkling that this film could have 10 nominations and mm-hmm. that I could have a nomination. 
And I said in the first week, I really felt that excited and thrilled. And this was something new and different. And this was a piece of art mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like no other. Pretty special. It's very special. I mean, I've seen the movie probably five or six times, you know, and I, I, I said this when I interviewed Don Burt, the production designer, who was one of the, I interviewed him twice, once about just his own career and then secondly, just about Mank. And, you know, I what's... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I thought what was really kind of strikes me about this movie is that the craft, it's sort of right out front, but yet it's so invisible. You know, it's like you, you it's still very much about the mundane life of these workaday Hollywood people. And it doesn't feel like you're trying to do a version of an MGM movie or, or you know, a, kind of a caricature or a parody. It really feels like you're there. And, and it has a lot to do with sort of the muted color palette, which is not over the top and garish. But also from your perspective, from my perspective about your work, it feels like, yes, obviously it's makeup, but it's so much about textures. And, and, and right, it, it, it's, it's like, it, it's you created... Um, you know, it has everything to do with with sweat and lines on people's faces and shading and shadows and contrast that that you're creating, right? I mean, this is not something they're doing with lighting because they're shooting it digitally. Yes, that's so great. You you totally nailed it. <laughs> you know, when we were doing foundations, when we were looking at skin tones, I knew it had to be darker. But what we found out pretty soon, pretty early in the testing phase was Luminescence, I mean, I, I, I think I've said that I was then looking for a foundation that would give you an eggshell finish as mm. opposed to high gloss or matte. Mm -hmm. Because an eggshell egg finish, when you paint your bathroom in an eggshell finish, everything is muted, but the lights pop off of it. You know, mm. it, it, it absorbs light, but it also reflects light. And that was really, really, really important. Mm -hmm on the skin tones uh, uh so you're creating highlights on the skin tones with the way that you're creating the makeup yeah same thing with lips you know if the lipstick was too matte it just looked like marker and if it was too shiny it kind of fell off the face mm -hmm. it had to have the perfect uh shine the perfect finish so everything really was a lot of texture and finish and then, you know, you have your sweats. Um, I literally looked at my, my uh, research photos and whatever that person looked like in that still, that eight by 10 still, I took that and I just moved it over and I superimposed it on the face of the actor, hmm. which I didn't really know I was doing at the time, but that's what I was doing. Wow. And I just, the day, well, we did two, two days of testing. So I think Charles Dance was in the first day. I think he might've been one of the first ones. And he came in and he was playing William Randolph Hearst, who doesn't look anything like. Hmm. And William Randolph Hearst has these, uh, you know, I don't even know his background, but he has eyes like Turkish people or Middle Eastern people. They're dark all the way around, mm -hmm. all the way around. There's just, it's uh, inherently dark. And then he's photographed with, light up here mm -hmm. so he looks like he has these cadaver eyes <laughs> they're just these sunken holes in his eyes in his face so that's what i did i wow. made these sunken 
overdrawn, just it starts, you know, kind of lighter and then it just gets deeper as the, these holes, the cadaver eyes is what uh -huh. I call Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh my God, this is what you want me to look like? <laughs> he doesn't know what we're doing. He doesn't know the relationship. He doesn't know anything, you know? Right. He right. he's going to work with David and that's great. I said, no, this is what you're going to look like. Are you sure? Oh my God. So every day, and everyone in the room too was like, are you sure, JJ? Hmm. I was like, yes, I've never been so sure of anything in my life. <laughs> so he goes out, he tests. It's amazing. In fact, I want to do more. So we, we do that. And every day he sits in my chair and he won't let anyone else work on him. I mean, we have a really nice relationship. We gossip and have fun and stuff. And he's like, you sure you want to go that far? You sure? <laughs> yeah. Now I've heard him in interviews go, I don't look anything like William Randolph first, but when she gets finished with all that stuff around my eyes, I'm him. I'm him. That was incredible. And he is, he really is. You know I mean? He, he, it's, it's, it is such a perfect example of an actor uh, communicating the presence of another person without looking like them. And obviously the makeup has everything to do with that. I also think there's this wonderful stark difference between the men and the women in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Because the men, you know, also Arliss Howard, who's terrific as Louis, as Louis B. Mayer. I mean, his, his walk and talk is one of my very favorite sequences in the movie. Yeah. And him, obviously, Mank, all the writers, you know, Ernest Lehman, the guy who plays Ernest, Ernest Lehman. And, and they all have this, this and, and the, the, uh, the feeling of, again, texture and age and living much harder than they probably should. And then all the women have this really wonderful restrained glamour you know, I mean, obviously, particularly Amanda Seyfried, talk about creating that look because her as Marion Davis, I think it's probably the best performance of her career. It's just amazing. Absolutely wonderful. And I had worked with her for a few years on Big Love. So oh, right. we, we had a history. So she came in and it was like, you know, blah, 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 blah. and she doesn't really look like Marion Davis at all. Mm. She came in having read the book, her autobiography. Um, there are certain things that we wanted to bring out in her character. We wanted to make her eyes like a doll, hmm. like a, a, you know, she's comes from silent film. Hmm. So she's very expressive. So big eyes, big round eyes, David didn't want thin eyebrows. So we had to come up with the right shape. Michelle worked on her eyebrow shape for a long time until we got it into like a half moon that came down to a point over here so that, you got the idea or the feeling of feeling again, the feeling of being thin mm -hmm. and period without being jarring and caricaturish mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. those eyebrows, they take you out of any scene. You don't want to see those eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to give the feeling of that. And then her lip shape. The first time Michelle did her lip shape, I was like, oh, shit. It was so, it's a diamond shape. But mm -hmm. it was so different from what, you know, Amanda looks like. Mm -hmm. And it was darker than my eye could take at that point. We worked on that for a couple of weeks until we found something that just made her pop. And it was the different bigger eyelashes in the middle, smaller ones over here, an eyeliner that, I mean, Michelle worked on that eyeliner forever, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. forever until you get the right the right arch, the right dip, so that it changed the shape of her eyes. 
and uh, she has beautiful skin. So we did that. And then her nails have uh, the, the uh, nail polish of the day, which was a half moon. The moons were not painted and the tips weren't painted. Huh. So we did that on her. And Amanda's so terrific that the first day we shot was the first, we, were, we did the pyre scene. Like oh, really? Really? That's my fa- I think that's probably my favorite um, frame well, we in the film. Wow. We, oh. we shot that. But huh. the first time we did it, she's up on the pyre. William Randolph first comes up on a horse. Oh, across okay. This whole big uh, meadow. And she turns around and she talks in that Brooklynese accent. And I almost <laughs> cried. It was so amazing. And, you know, she's up against the clouds and the clouds are there. And wow. she looks amazing. And this place is huge, huge. Mm-hmm. We've got Indians. We've got a film crew. We've got, you know, craftspeople. We've got the, the, the uh, studio heads. It's gigantic. And, mm-hmm. and five or six horses. So we nailed it with her and we did. And she comes off and she sits there and she goes, damn it. I didn't feel the pop. We were like, what? She goes, I I didn't feel the pop. I didn't feel the pop. I want to do it again. Well, we all got to do it again because we reshot it even bigger, (laughs) bigger, bigger. Uh, It took us a week to do it the second time with the charging horses. And then we've got William Randolph first in a uh, train car. Yeah, the camera car, fantastic. Yeah, and the background in that is so amazing. There's the guy on the mm. on the lift. He spits out over yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, they're so terrific. Yeah. Take after take after take. It was gigantic, absolutely gigantic. That I told Don Burt that was that that was the frame where I had to stop the movie and watch it a couple times because it was it was everything. It was. <laughs> It was Marion Davis, you know, somebody help me, you know, and, and, the, and the, the, then the music kicks in sort of for the first time, you really hear the Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score and, and, the, and you're seeing this silent movie be, or this talking movie being made in the, in the thirties. It, it's so amazing that sequence. Uh, and I just think it's, it's like, it, that to me feels like all of your powers as a crew and a, and a film family really poured into one amazing sequence. Uh, um, amazing. And, 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 and she, and also like you were saying about her makeup, you know, her face does pop because it's that thing with the platinum blonde hair that it could so easily, I feel like disappear and just be floating and headless. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, and she's at, and for anyone who hasn't seen the film, it is absolutely terrific. I mean, it really is a masterpiece. Congratulations, Gigi. Cause it is, the work is just outstanding. Uh, and I know I've already taken way too much of your time. Oh my gosh. I know, I know. So the last thing I'll ask you is any advice that you would have for someone who wants to do what you do? First of all, you have to have a passion. It has to be something that you can't help yourself. You have to do. You know, it's the same thing with acting. When I meet certain actors, I know that 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 actor would act even if nobody paid him their blood you know uh nick nolte is like that he doesn't care what he's in he has to be working and he's so in the moment and he's so there and there and gary's like that gary likes to you know that's his calling that's what excites him and and that's the same thing for film if you have a passion if it wakes something up in you if you 
if you want to travel, you want to have a group of friends that become your family. You know, I've got quite a few of these families around. It's a, it's a supportive and it's art. Now, not everybody in the, in my business makes art. Hmm. And I, that became very clear to me more so than any other time as when this movie came out and you would be, you know, you would be reading the comments. Oh, I didn't like that. That wasn't as good as seven. That wasn't as good as this one. That wasn't as good as that one. Oh my God. I like this. And at one point I got so discouraged. I was like, what? This is art. Mm. Now, growing up with Andy Warhol, I met every living great artist there was. I knew what art was. Mm -hmm. And that's what I make. And that's what I want to be involved in. And that's what Mank is. Mank is a piece of art. Mm -hmm. The fact that, that David recorded that sound played it back mono in a movie theater, re-recorded it that way so that it would sound like a 1930s, 1940s movie. That right there tells you the magic of David because once the, the movie is made, then he goes into the editing room and he puts it all together. He's putting it together basically while we're, you know, he's getting a rough cut together while we're, mm -hmm. while we're shooting. And then his art kicks in and he does these little, these little things. He, you know, he'll put a dialogue in writing at the bottom of a scene. He'll get all excited about it. You know, it's like he'll add, he didn't add that in this one, obviously, but he's got his little pieces of art that make the texture and the layers in the movie so much thicker. Mm -hmm. You don't even know they're there, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you feel it because mm -hmm. it is so deep. There's so much going on. It's like Trish and her costumes. Every costume in the writer's room, they're all men in the same suits, but mm -hmm. every costume is a little different gray. Mm -hmm. You know, she mapped them out, their suits, so that she knew where they were going in relation so they didn't meld. And, you know, it's just there's so much layering of art, collaborative art. We mm -hmm. all work so tight together that any one of us can go to that other person and say, what do you think? And vice versa. So that it's this beautiful dance of, of creativity. And I don't even care if anybody likes our movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was raising my son and I guess my best friend going through school and everything, we had a, we had a slogan, fuck them if they can't take a joke. And I've always lived by that. And I especially lived by it on this one because when the reviews came out, most of them were glowing, but then you had these people saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, they really hated us for a little mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't used to anything like that. And I got a little shook because it's like, but, this is art. Those people wouldn't know art if it hit him over the head. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a snob. <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to get into this business, you have to, you have to have a passion. You have to have a passion. If you're just going to put makeup on, you could go do anything. I, that's my opinion. Right. You know, I've had a magical career and that's, that's what I brought to it. Well, it's still happening. You're still having it. I am. There's a few <laughs> projects in the works. I, I can only imagine. I can only imagine. Well, thank you, Gigi. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so much. This was thank so lovely. So
Yes. And let's see, if I win, either one of them, call me back. I will. I absolutely will. Most definitely. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz, and I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.